This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Amara, Sam, Benton, Susanna, and Joanna. First we'll tackle a few serious questions. Then we'll look at this episode's big question, and as always, we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with a couple of serious questions. We have questions this time from Amara and from Sam. Amara has a question about something we do every Sunday at Grace, communion. She asks, why is communion so important? Communion goes by several different names. Some people say Holy Communion, others the Lord's Supper. Sometimes they use a a fancy word, Eucharist, which just means Thanksgiving. Whatever you call it, the Lord's Supper or Communion is one of the two sacraments that Jesus instituted. And unlike the other one, baptism, which is a -a once-in-a-lifetime sign, communion is meant to be done regularly. That's why we do it every Sunday. Now, everything that God tells us to do in worship is important, and it's important because God tells us to do it. He wouldn't give us these instructions if they weren't important, and there's no element of worship that we should neglect, and we need to be really careful about ranking one over another. Having said that, We can think about the reason why God has given us what he's given us, why he's instructed us the way that he has, and if we do that, we can appreciate why each element is important. So when it comes to communion, I think there are at least two reasons that we should cherish communion. Here's the first reason. We should cherish communion because of what it pictures to us. Communion in the bread and the wine that we eat and drink pictures the death of Christ for our sins. We're told that we should discern the body of Christ in the sacraments, so we should look for the way that it pictures Jesus's atoning death for us. So every time we celebrate communion, what we're doing is creating a visible picture of the gospel. So in the sermon, we hear the word proclaimed, and then at the table, we see the word being acted out. As human beings, we're weak, and so we need these constant, concrete signs to reassure us, and that's one of the reasons God gave us the sacraments. So that's one reason, because of what communion pictures to us. There's a second reason which is this, we should cherish communion because of what God does through it. So communion is what the Westminster Standards call a means of grace. So the Westminster Standards identify the the word, sacraments, and prayer as means of grace. Now, what does that mean? It means that the word and sacraments and prayer don't just talk about grace. 
They are actually ways that the Holy Spirit works in us to give us grace. When we hear the word proclaimed and we listen with faith, when we participate with faith in the sacraments, when we pray with faith, the Spirit works in us to give us the grace that is promised in the gospel. Because of that, these means of grace are especially important, necessary for our growth in Christ. Regular communion is important, just like regular preaching and regular prayer, because it's part of how the Holy Spirit works in us to help us to live like Jesus more and more. Now Sam has a question about the final night vision of Zechariah, the one that has all the chariots in it. Sam wants to know, what color is dappled? Okay, so in the first vision, the one with the horseman, and the last vision, the one with the chariots, Zechariah mentions various colors of horse. If you go back to episode 5, Sam asked a similar question about the horses in the first vision. Now, if you want to hear my explanation of the colors of the horses, you need to go back and listen to episode 5. Now, in the last vision, a new color is mentioned. So this is in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. The first chariot had red horses the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. So that's Sam's question. What does dappled mean? What color are dappled horses? Now, as I explained in that earlier episode, the horses that a Hebrew speaker would call red are what we would think of and refer to as dark brown. And so dark brown, black, white, Colors like that, those are all natural colors for a horse. The reason why the visions mention all the different colors of horses is not because the individual colors have symbolic value, but rather it's to illustrate the variety and the magnitude of this herd of horses. So in the vision, each horse is meant to invoke a troop of horses, and each chariot, a squadron of chariots. So we're thinking of hosts of horses, a variety of horses. So the word dappled means spotted or mixed between dark and light. So when the sun is shining on a tree on a sunny day, and you have that mixture of light where the sun is hitting and shade where it's not, we would say that that tree is dappled with light because it has that mixture of darkness and light because some is bright and some is in shadows. Now, same thing is true when we're talking about the color of a horse. When we call a horse dappled, what we mean is that its color is spotted uh, between lighter and darker places. And those could be smaller spots or they could be larger spots. The most common kind of dappled horse is a gray dappled horse, but this dappling can happen with a variety of different colors of horses. Now it's time for the big question. 
This week's big question comes from Benton, and it's inspired by Dan Reed's sermon about the bronze serpent in Numbers 21. Here's the question. The people asked Moses to pray that the serpents would go away, but why didn't they pray to God themselves? So, as a reminder, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he compares himself to the bronze serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness. He says that when he is lifted up like the serpent was, then everyone who looks to him will have life. And that was the comparison that Dan preached about in his sermon. Now, the story that Jesus is referring to here happens in Numbers chapter 21. The people are in the wilderness, they're grumbling, they're losing faith in Moses and in God, and because they lack faith and they are uh, rebelling against God, God sends as judgment fiery serpents to afflict them. So the people repent, and when they repent, they cry out. They're speaking to Moses here. They say, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Now, as Dan mentioned, God doesn't take the serpents away but he does provide a way of salvation from the serpents, and that's what the bronze serpent is. So the question is, why did the people ask Moses to pray to God instead of just praying to God for themselves? The answer is actually simple. In the wilderness, Moses was their go-between. He was the go-between or the intermediary between God and the people. Remember, at Mount Sinai, it was Moses who went up the mountain and was in the presence of God. He received the tablets of law from God, and then he came back down to give them to the people. Moses was called by God and had a special face-to-face communion with God that was unlike anyone else's connection to God at that time. God spoke to the people, but he spoke to them through Moses. Now, Moses also interceded for the people when they sinned. He would plead their case before God. That's why in Numbers 21, they go to Moses. They're asking him to intercede or to plead with God on their behalf. He had done exactly the same thing back in Exodus 32 When they made a golden calf to worship, God was displeased with the people because of their sin, and Moses, who just come down off the mountain, goes right back up to intercede for the people in the presence of God. So Moses is the mediator of their covenant with God, the go-between, and it's natural that Moses would be the one that they turn to to speak to God on their behalf. In fact, if you go to the book of Hebrews, this question of mediation is really important to the case that the author of Hebrews makes for Jesus. One of the key points that he makes when he compares the Old Covenant to the New Covenant is that just as Moses was the mediator of the Old Covenant, Jesus is the mediator of the New Covenant. But Jesus is a better mediator, and the new covenant is a better covenant. So here's where things get 
interesting because I know it seems like the people are doing something strange in Numbers 21 because instead of praying to God directly, they are going to Moses and asking him to pray on their behalf. And that's not what we would do, right? We would just pray directly to God. Well, okay, but in a sense, we do exactly what they did because we also have a mediator. And when we pray, we pray in Jesus' name. Jesus is our mediator. He's our go-between. He's the one who stands between the Father and us. And so when we pray, our prayer goes through him. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's constantly making intercession for us. He's constantly pleading our case, asking for our forgiveness, asking that we be blessed. He's representing us. In fact, if we have faith in him and we are covered in his blood, then he has joined us to himself. Well, there is, of course, a difference between Jesus's mediation and Moses's mediation because Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son. He's the second person of the Trinity. And so, in an interesting way, when we pray in Jesus' name, and when we pray to Jesus, we are praying directly to God. It's just that God has become our go-between, our mediator in the person of Jesus Christ. It's time to wrap things up, but before we go, we have a couple of fun questions to answer from Susanna and Joanna. Susanna is wondering what happens when you get thirsty in heaven. She asks, in heaven, do we drink milk? Interesting question, Susanna. If you flip through the Bible and you look for references to milk, you'll find something very interesting. A lot of the references to milk in the Old Testament actually come from a famous description of the promised land as a land flowing with milk and honey. And in the Old Testament, especially in the five books of Moses, you find this phrase over and over again describing Israel, describing the land of promise. Now, the promised land is a prototype of the new creation, the world that will be restored when Jesus returns. So it would actually make sense that after Jesus returns and makes all things new, we would still be drinking milk and eating honey. On the other hand, there's another interesting way the Bible talks about milk. In the New Testament, when milk is referenced, usually it's referenced as food for babies or food for people who are immature. And the apostles are constantly encouraging us not to be that way. We should grow up and we should be mature and we should not uh, drink milk, but we should eat meat like grown-ups, metaphorically speaking. So in that sense, we're meant to sort of progress past the immaturity that, that milk drinking is associated with. I know that's all complicated, and, and it doesn't exactly answer the question, because, of course, it's hard to know exactly what things will be like in heaven or in new creation. But I'm going to say that if we do drink milk in heaven, I bet it's chocolate milk. 
because that is the best kind of milk. Our last question for this episode comes from Joanna, who wants to know, do you like cats or dogs better? Well, Joanna, cats and dogs are both great, but I definitely have a preference. All the way back in episode three, I mentioned that my two favorite animals were both cats, my cats Hugo and Clive. The Hugo and Clive, sadly, are not around anymore, but thanks to them, I like cats better than dogs, and even better than I like monkeys and unicorns, and I like those a lot. To be honest, I'm actually afraid of dogs. And dogs are funny because they can sense your fear. Whenever I'm around dogs, dogs always single me out and they want to jump all over me and and lick me. And there seems to be nothing I can do to get them not to be interested in, in smothering me with their attention. And I am not a fan of being smothered with attention. And so as a result, not only do I prefer cats, but I really like to keep my distance from dogs. But if you like dogs, that's great, because as I say, they're both wonderful animals. But it seems to be the case that people like either cats or dogs, and my preference is definitely for cats. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.